Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 12th of August, 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. Economy doing fine, Mike, according oh, to the government. Couldn't be better. Couldn't be better. Uh, well, we're officially in recession. No, we're not. Anybody that's being honest is going to say we're in a depression. Uh, this is uh, the headline today in most of the mainstream press is that we're officially in recession. Uh, let's have a look at the graph which shows where we are uh, and as you can see uh, it's pretty spectacular collapse uh, in the second quarter not surprising for anybody really I wouldn't have thought uh, but uh, let's just have a look at uh, some of the the sort of detail of this um, so this is a services economy and again nobody should be particularly surprised that of course it's accommodation and food services that are suffering the worst uh, with something around 86 percent uh, drop in their income uh, in the second quarter um, but uh, that's pretty spectacular nonetheless, even though we shouldn't be surprised by it. Manufacturing, uh, not down to such a degree, but all down with the exception of uh, pharmaceuticals. Uh, that's a bit of a surprise. No, right, I don't think so. Uh, and uh, spending, well, spending is down as well, uh, with exception of uh, gross capital formation uh, in the first quarter. Uh, but that uh, certainly made up for it in the second quarter. But private consumption, well done. Uh, general government expenditure, well done. Uh, of course, that doesn't include all the emergency expenditure that's been going on uh, since uh, COVID started. Exports and imports, all down. So everything's down. Uh, but employment, also down. Uh, so 730,289 fewer jobs uh, in the second quarter than in the first. Yeah, um, that's a spectacular success for the government there, Brian. Well, spectacular, because, of course, the government um, is running an agenda, which is to destroy UK. It's to destroy everything about us, culture, history, economy. And they are doing a very good job. So they must be pleased. Uh, and uh, well, even better, uh, 2.7 million more claimants uh, since the beginning of this. Sorry, that's the total number of claimants has gone up to 2.7 million from, from around 1.5 million or so. So uh, we're doing very well so far. Yeah, we're doing very well. The country is, uh, is being transformed, which is the objective. Uh, and, I'm sorry, I'll just, I'll just yeah. finish by saying, of course, this is the objective. And this is the objective that was stated by Andrew Bailey uh, last week, who said quite clearly that uh, it was the desire of the Bank of England not to be keeping people in what he described as unproductive jobs. People need to look to the future and move forward. Uh, and of course, this echoes exactly his predecessor, Mark Carney, before this nonsense all started, um, who was making it very clear that any company that didn't fit in with the new green economy uh, would be bankrupted. And they seem to be moving ahead with that policy pretty successfully. Pretty successfully. And I just add that one of our uh, viewers has remarked, of course, that the UK column is, is now given a red tick. Is that right? By NewsGuard. Yeah, it's yeah. a red tick. What does that red tick signify? Well, you can't trust what the UK column says. Very interesting, Mike, because, of course, all the statistics you've used there to show what's happening have come from the Office of National Statistics. So we've given the government's own statistics to report what's happening with the economy. But according to NewsGuard, they're not to be trusted. Well, to defend ONS a little bit, um, I would say we're going to come on to this a little later. There is a bit of a disparity between what the government wishes and what they actually publish. And, and I think, uh, well, well, we'll explain that a little bit later on. Yeah, and, and we're going to actually give a positive vote to the Office of National Statistics um, well, is how it's probably going to come out. Well, they haven't been without criticism over the last few months, and, and, and it's reasonable to criticise uh, where they perhaps haven't uh, done exactly right. Uh, but I think they're certainly doing a lot better than others. Excellent. Well, um, good news for the UK column anyway. Our viewers are starting to take some really excellent actions. And uh, so we've got an email here, which has come back from an, uh, an MP. Uh, well, it's come back from a researcher, actually, um, from, its, from the constituency of Angela Rayner MP. The lady who's responded is called Dawn Marsden. And uh, what she responded to, well, uh, one of our viewers started to ask that uh, key question about has a quantitative uh, medical risk assessment been carried out into the wearing of masks. And this has produced a truly astonishing and excellent reply, which we'd like to take our viewers and listeners through, because I think what we're going to see is the very clear picture of whether or not the UK government has taken the risks 
from uh, hypoxia and hypercapnia. Uh, I, I made a mistake, uh, um, I think on Monday, I should have put hypercapnia, um, but that is um, starvation of oxygen and effectively breathing too much CO2 as a result of the, the mask. So let's have a look at the response. So here's the lady. Um, well, we paraphrase this bit. You asked whether a risk assessment on the physical and psychological risks of wearing masks has been undertaken by the government. I can't really answer that question directly, but I can give you a soup of rules, regulations and side issues. Um, so let's see how that goes. Well, uh, really the response has been obfuscated. You could say that, or you could say that actually this um, MP and her researcher is being honest in the reply, i.e. they have done their best to find the information, um, but it has been tricky. So let's see how it pans out. So these are just some of the rules and regulations, guidance and supposedly law that's, that's included in a response. We've got the library paper on coronavirus lockdown laws. We've got the cabinet office wearing face masks. We've got health protection wearing of face coverings in a relevant place, England. We've got health protection wearing of face coverings on public transport. We've got the impact of mask wearing on businesses, charities, voluntary bodies, shops and supermarkets. We've got explanatory memorandum to health protection. We've got exemptions, children, reasonable excuses, etc. That's exemptions to mask wearing. We've got equality impact assessments, always very important, Mike. We've got Parliamentary Office of Science and Technology COVID-19 briefings, and we've got the House of Commons Library. So a lot of information came back, a lot of information. The only thing we couldn't see very clearly is what the answer to the question was. <laughs> but uh, let's follow it on through, uh, hopefully. Anyway, where do we go? Well, here we are. So this is a part of the meat that comes in. Each of the regulations uh, listed, that was above in our email, have been made in exercise of the powers conferred by sections 41C, brackets 1, 3C and 4D, 45F2 and 45P2, all found in part 2A, Public Health Protection of the Public Health Control of Disease Act 1984. So obviously people feeling comfortable with that. The Public Health Control of Diseases Act 1984 does not require the government to undertake or publish a risk assessment before making regulations under part 2A. And ah. um, this is where I think we have to say that although the reply was very... Um, um, verbose. Verbose. We'll say verbose, Mike. Yeah, it was very verbose. We're now starting to get to the meat of it, that the government has not undertaken any risk assessment into the wearing of masks. Now, it went on a bit more. A government might produce and publish a regulatory impact assessment for introducing a new policy. Such a doc document would, among other things, identify risk factors and set out part of the evidence base for a policy change. So perhaps there's a bit more there, perhaps not. Uh, the governments normally only produce an impact assessment if the measure in question is expected to be enforced for more than a year. Uh -huh. There's a subtlety in that. So something is going to harm you. It could do it in minutes in the right condition. But the government's not concerned as long as it's only said it's going to do something that was going to harm you for, for a year or less. The regulations relating to face coverings are all time limited. They expire at the end of the period of 12 months, beginning with the day on which they come into force. So don't worry that they're going to harm you, Mike, because you're only going to have to put up with it for a year. And if you're still alive, um, then the government might consider changing its rules and regulations. Uh -huh. Okay, so... Here it goes on, the explanatory memorandum to the health protection, coronavirus, wearing of face coverings in a relevant place. Uh, England, Regulations 2020, states that a formal impact assessment has not been prepared for this instrument because this measure will be in place for 12 months. A similar statement about impact is also made in the explanatory memorandum to the health protection, coronavirus, wearing of face coverings, public transport, England, Regulations 2020, Paras 12.1 to 12.4. You clear on this subject now, Yes, Mike? yes, yes. It's, this makes it very clear. <laughs> it's very clear. So let's see what we need to ask. Well, this is the key question. 
If no quantitative medical risk assessment for the wearing of masks has been carried out by the government, we've got to say what is an impact assessment and the regulatory impact assessment to which she refers? Well, if we put in the basic definition of an impact assessment, it's a means of measuring the effectiveness of organizational activities and judging the significance of both, oh, sorry, of change the significance of changes brought about by those activities. It's neither an art or a science, but both. So the thing here is that an impact assessment is nothing to do with risk to the individual, and the regulatory impact assessment is really just a focused impact assessment on the regulations in question. So if we contrast it to the risk assessment, uh, that is a systematic examination of a task, job or process that you carry out at work for the purpose of identifying the significant hazards, the risk of someone being harmed, and deciding what further control measures you must take to reduce the risk to an acceptable level. Now that's a pretty, uh, pretty clear definition. So we can now say this, that we need to issue a government risk warning. That is a risk warning of the UK government because the UK government has made no quantitative medical risk assessment on its enforcement of the wearing of masks. It has no concerns over health risks to the public at large and for those with medical or mental health issues which place them at increased risk from mask wearing. It has given itself the power to place the health and safety and well-being of the public at risk on its own say-so. This is the most dangerous thing. We're going to harm you or potentially harm you, and you've just got to sit there and take it, Mike. This is unbelievably dangerous. And the government is clearly prepared to continue to place public health at risk from mask wearing, including hypoxia and hypercapnia. So we're going to say well done, very, very well done to the viewers and listeners that are now taking action to challenge their MPs. We've given you now the meat of the argument. The British government says it does not care if it is harming the health of the public by forcing them to wear masks. It has not done a risk assessment. And yet if you were running a basic business, Mike, and you hadn't carried out risk assessment into some form of process, you would be fined and or put in jail mm. because you'd have placed your uh, workforce at risk. Not the British government, it simply doesn't do it. So we've got questions for Angela Rayner. Let's bring in the uh, first one. Dear Angela, what will you and your fellow MPs, uh, sorry, there should be MPs, do to protect the public from health risks from masks? That is the question which everybody should now be asking their MP. What are they actually going to do? And we can also say, well, can we trust Angela to fulfill those duties and obligations to the public? And why do we raise this issue? Well, if you go and have a look at her Twitter page, you find some very, very interesting things because her first concern is not uh, members of the public and masks and COVID. It's the fact that the shooting season is now in full operation and uh, game birds are being killed across the country. So don't worry about uh, 40,000 pensioners or uh, elderly people who've died in the care homes. Uh, she's worried about the fact that we've got uh, the uh, shooting season operating. Um, we've got a retweet of the largest death rate in Europe and now the deepest recession in Europe. Well, she's picking up on the recession, but there's no meat on, on the death rate. She's not speaking out about those elderly people that were simply abandoned to die in the care and residential homes. But what is she big on? Uh, well, she's very big on future leaders. Uh -huh. And so here's a giant, uh, a giant advert and she's looking forward to this Zoom event um, with Future Leaders programme. So this is it. This is all of the mind control stuff. And let's just bring this one in. This is what she says about herself, that our movement, that's the Labour movement, must be rooted in and reflected of the communities that we seek to serve. But of course, the first thing she's not going to do is serve the communities. So I think that this uh, constituent, and thank you very much for sending us in that email, can get straight back to Angela Rayner and now ask her the really, the real, I'm going to call it the killer question, which is what is the government going to do to rescind this abusive mask wearing um, rule?
Um, the, the issue of masks, Brian, is uh, watching the conversation on the internet is, is hugely uh, interesting because you're starting to see over the last few weeks the splits in various factions on the internet. Yeah. Uh, and one of, one of the major factions that is very pro-masks uh, are the allegedly pro-science so-called influencers on YouTube and so on, and they're pushing very hard that people should just shut up about the dangers of masks and get on with wearing them. Um, and uh, not be concerned about it at all. But of course, there are voices within the scientific community, some who are starting to get some traction in the mainstream media, and perhaps this is a very positive thing. Um, so here's Professor Carl Hennigan, and he's from the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine at Oxford University. Uh, he was quoted in the uh, Belfast Telegraph yesterday um, because he's basically saying that the Northern Ireland executive must start being honest with people about the efficacy of face coverings. Uh, and he's saying that, uh, uh, you know, the evidence used to impose mandatory wearing of masks in public is of extremely poor quality. So in other words, the government not being, or governments not being led by the science here, not by the real science, they're being led by political agendas or pseudoscience, uh, as perhaps we'll see with Public Health England in a minute. Uh, but he has been very outspoken on this issue. Uh, another doctor in Northern Ireland recently uh, whose name escapes me at the moment, I apologise for that, saying, you know, that wearing a mask is like uh, putting, covering your face in chicken wire and, or, and, and expecting to be protected from mosquitoes. It's, well, it's just, well it, you know, a great it's, analogy was, was carrying sand on a tennis racket right. to give a, a representation of the scale of the virus versus the, 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 uh, the grid of the mask. Right, so, so of course, Professor Carl Hennigan is the same man uh, who basically exposed the fact that the government was uh, uh, not reporting deaths for coronavirus properly, COVID deaths properly, and that resulted in Man ha Matt Hancock saying, you know, currently the daily deaths measure counts all people who have tested positive for coronavirus and who have since died with no cutoff between the time of testing and the date of death. So in other words, uh, as we reported here a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, they were anybody that had uh, coronavirus at any point in time, even if they didn't matter whether they died five minutes having been tested positive or five weeks after being tested positive, uh, they still, or even five months potentially, according to the, uh, the way that the government was uh, counting this, uh, they were dying of COVID and not from anything else. Um, he also, uh, this morning, was tweeting this out, Carl uh, Hennigan, uh, misguided rise in cases breaches the ceiling that the government's joint biosecurity center said was acceptable to avoid flare-up and he's asking who's making these rules up he's really pretty uh, motivated about the fact that that this stuff is coming from the joint Bios biosecurity center who has largely replaced sage by the way for uh, the future policy here um, and uh, so the uh, Centre for uh, Evidence-Based Medicine that he works with published this yesterday, uh, ONS death data update and disparity with Public Health England. Um, so, you know, he, they're really uh, making this point that the government's data is quite different from the Office for National Statistics data, but only recently. Um, so this is what he says, the latest release from the Office for National Statistics on deaths registered in England and Wales in the week ending 31st of July, uh, 2020, that's week 31, shows that the number of deaths in which novel coronavirus COVID-19 was mentioned on the death certificate continues to decline in England. Uh, it says uh, here, the, in week 31, there were 8,946 deaths registered, 90 fewer than the five-year average. Uh, this is the seventh consecutive week that deaths have been below average. In the last seven weeks, there have been 1,503 further de deaths, uh, sorry, fewer deaths than expected. Uh, 62,208 versus 64,311 expected. Uh, and it goes on to say the disparity between the numbers according to the ONS criteria and those reported by Public Health England is more marked than before. PHE deaths are currently between two and three times higher than ONS. So they show a graph and here it is. And as you can see, if you go back to June, uh, June the 1st there on the left-hand side, there was already a disparity between the death numbers being reported by Public Health England and the death numbers being reported by the Office for National Statistics. Um, and as the time has gone on and fewer and fewer people are being infected and fewer and fewer people are going to hospital and fewer and fewer people are dying, that disparity between the Office for National Statistics and Public Health England has increased to, as he says, between two or three times, uh, according to PHE, compared to 
the uh, Office for National Statistics, and he's really arguing that the ONS figures are much more accurate. Well, the ON, uh, ONS, Mike, is a, is a very long established body of statistical professionals to produce data for the government. So their, their track record is very long term and is actually very good. Public Health England, we've seen very clearly, is a, is, is a highly politicised body that is going to do the government's bidding. But what we're really watching is propaganda, isn't it? Absolutely. So uh, this was, is the reason why he said this a few days ago. The northern lockdown was a rash decision. Where's the rise? By date of tests through July, there's no change if you factor in all the increased te testing that's going on. And so I just want to show another article from the Centre from uh, Evidence-Based Medicine. Uh, COVID cases in England aren't rising, and here's why. And he's basically showing here uh, a graph, and he's saying, uh, looking at the data uh, for July, by the date of the PCR test, to detect the virus is reported. It shows a trend for an increased number of uh, cases uh, detected. Uh, and you can see that trend, that's the, the thin blue line that uh, runs along the top of the bars there on the graph. Um, so by the most recent data, it's around 750 a day. Uh, now, but then he goes on to say that if you look at the data by the date the specimen was taken, the trend is still apparent. Okay, so perhaps the trend is actually genuine. Uh, but then he has another graph here showing the difference between Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 statistics. Now, Pillar 1 is the tests that are taken in hospitals, uh, public sector uh, areas, and Pillar 2 results are from private sector testing. And as you can see, if you look at the Pillar 1 data there, which is in dark blue at the bottom, that trend is actually decreasing. So fewer and fewer positive tests in a hospital setting, increasing positive tests in uh, a private sector setting, but his point then again is that if you just take that on based on absolute numbers, then it looks like there's still an increasing trend. But you can't do that because, of course, they're testing more. So how do you decide whether the, the increasing trend is as a result of increasing testing? Well, what you do is you, you uh, normalize that for per 100,000, which he has done. Uh, and what he is showing here is that if you normalize the data for uh, per 100,000 cases or, or tests rather, then you can see quite clearly that for pillar one, you still have the reducing trend. Uh, and for pillar two, which is the private sector, uh, in fact, it's absolutely flat. There is no increase in the number of uh, tests, uh, positive tests at all uh, under those circumstances. So cases are not rising is what he's demonstrating yet again. But we're still locking down on a local basis. Well, I was, going to, I was going to add that, Mike. So we're destroying the nation's economy. We're destroying jobs. We're destroying livelihoods. We're destroying lives on the basis of statistics that if we want to be kind, we can say those statistics are unclear. But actually, the evidence is growing that the statistics are perfectly clear. There's no problem. So the British government is attacking its own population through the lie of this uh, COVID epidemic. Uh, uh, well, absolutely. So, uh, and then we've got uh, we've got this. Of course, uh, coronavirus cases in the UK daily updated statistics. Except, of course, they're not being updated anymore because since uh, since Matt Hancock's announcement on the seventeenth that they're going to review the government statistics, not the ONS statistics, but the government statistics, they've had to take this down. So it says there on the seventeenth uh, of July, Secretary of State asked Public Health England to urgently review the way daily death statistics are currently reported. Uh, we're pausing the publication of the daily figure uh, while this review takes place. Well, it's already the 12th of August, and apparently that re review hasn't completed. Uh, it doesn't look like these daily uh, statistics are ever coming back. But getting back to the uh, CEBM once again, uh, here is another interesting statistic uh, or article here, European case fatality rates beyond lockdown uh, and the UK's outlier status. And as you can see from that data on the screen at the moment, uh, the UK is showing uh, a case fatality rate of 6.57, massively higher than every other country in Europe. Uh, so if we scroll down through here, you, you sort of get the, the, the gist of it. Uh, case fatality rates falling until you get to Spain at the end. So let's just look briefly at the, the numbers. Uh, UK 6.57, Italy 2.68, Sweden 1.64, France 0.89, Belgium, which had the worst record of anybody in Europe at the, at the peak is currently 0.62 in terms of case fatality rate and Spain, which is pretty close to Italy, is at 0.15. Britain so far out ahead 
And his argument is quite clearly that uh, uh, this is because the, the data is being misrepresented by the government. Yeah, in order to get a, polit a political agenda through, which is the transformation of UK economy and society. And, and the justification for local lockdowns as well, absolutely. Indeed. So we just end that segment by saying that this is the opportunity for viewers and listeners to get right back at their MPs to demand answers to these questions, to demand why the British government is not being accurate and clear in its statistics and to uh, point out the dangers of mask wearing. It, it's on a plate, really, for our viewers and listeners now. And I hope if you're listening in from the uh, United States, where, of course, equivalent things are going on, we've given you some idea of how to take this thing apart. But the risk assessment, absolutely vital. Well, many people have been saying that the... Uh, People around them are not acting normally anymore. This is not surprising because we have the government's behavioural insight team plotting and attacking the minds of UK citizens. Uh, but this was sent through to us this morning and it's fascinating observation by one of UK column uh, viewers. So this is St John's Ambulance. Many people would say really wonderful organisation that does a lot of work turning up at events and being there in case um, somebody is injured or falls at an event or um, whatever it is going on and a lot of volunteers so we understand that but let's have a look at the advice that suddenly popped up on the St John's Ambulance site this is what to do if someone is unresponsive and not breathing normally well the first thing it says is call for help call 999 or 112 for emergency help and the AED is an automated external defibrillator if I've got that right and um, so that is there to to see whether you know somebody's heart can be restarted so this of course we would say is all absolutely spot on but now in Covid let's see what happens next lay a piece of toweling or clothing over the casualty's nose and mouth so you have somebody lying on the ground unresponsive possibly with breathing problems and the first thing you do is put a cloth over their mouth yeah because uh, you, you want to reduce the breathing problems don't you um, <laughs> well Mike we're laughing but this is this is so serious yes. now we took a bit of advice this morning we're going to follow it up because we had limited time to follow this through but I'm going to say that uh, I've done some first aid training myself and I looked at this and I thought this can't be wrong so, uh, it can't be right so we um, we spoke to uh, a couple of people with first aid serious first aid and mounting rescue training and this is uh, what they said. It can be very difficult to tell if a casualty is breathing at all. Their breathing can be so uh, shallow, so affected. It's very difficult to even know where they're breathing. Uh, what do you do? You put a towel over their f face and nose. Um, to further restrict breathing with a towel or clothing is likely to further suppress breathing and place the casualty at further risk of hypoxia. And I've done it again. That should be hypercapnia. I will... Uh, watch that one in future three casualty may vomit now this is uh, uh, something that could happen you put a towel over somebody's face what are you actually worried about you're worried about somebody vomiting and then inhaling that vomit but if you cover them with a towel you're not necessarily going to see them mm. do some form of choking um, none of this makes sense uh, what this seems to be is changing uh, first aid treatment common sense first aid treatment in order to follow the government's agenda um, so this was the rest of it to carry on with the chest compressions which is all part of the normal treatment but this thing does not make sense so we thought we would call st john's ambulance service this morning which we did um, we wanted to ask for comment on these concerns regarding their advice for unresponsive casualties not breathing uh, telephone calls to the London HQ were not answered. You went round in a loop. And when you called the emergency press team on a particular number, a lady told you to call the emergency press team on the number that you were listening to the record message. Mm. So we're going to wait and see if we can get a response to that. But while we're reporting really excellent work uh, by um, UK column viewers, have a look at this because this is a viewer starting to pull apart what's happening. And they're point, pointing out the government's use of applied psychology. 
They're warning about processing. Brian, we're being processed. Never forget this. The process is hidden by throwing in all sorts of relevant and irrelevant contacts to distract us all into debate and perpetuate process. This is the way to the abattoir. Walk this way. Look at the roses. Well, they're not roses. They're daisies. Look at the birds while we shoot the horses. Aren't those donuts tasty? Oh, they're chocolate eclairs while they poison the water. Oh, dear, we're in the slaughter pens too late. Now, this is a raw email, but the sentiment is accurate. So basically, we are under this uh, psychological attack. And uh, what uh, the email ends up with is that the whole debate about contents distracts from what is being uh, what is the process. And we need to warn that the process is the attack on the minds of the UK public. So we'll end that section. Uh, just one more email. We've had a lot of extremely positive emails from viewers, which we thank you very much for. But we thought we would show this one uh, because this was a particularly unpleasant little email from a gentleman called Richard. He said, hi, fear mongers. How are your lives? Bad, I hope. People are sharing your obvious lies and seem to believe them. Maybe you should stop. Probably should. Decent thing to do. Regards. Actual human are being affected by your crap. So not very happy, Mike. But since we're putting out real information, is he unable to actually see stuff which is the government's own data? And apparently not. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> But anyway, you know, if uh, if you do like what we do and you'd like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. And there are options to help us out there. And I just once again say a massive thank you to everybody uh, that is doing that. And uh, just a reminder that uh, Friday will be the last UK Column News for two weeks. Um, so the office will be closed for the next two weeks from the 17th of August until the 20th of August. And we will return with the news on Monday the 31st of August. And as it says on screen, a massive thank you to everybody uh, for your support. It, it, I think we've got to say, Mike, it's, it's been extraordinary, particularly since COVID. That support has been fantastic and it's made a big difference to us. Yes. So thank you. Now, uh, I'm delighted to say uh, Vanessa Bailey has uh, joined us. Welcome to the programme, Vanessa. Hi, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Now, how are things, how are things where you are? <laughs> There's a feeling actually of a lull before a storm, I think, at the moment, after the, the tragedy in Beirut, um, when actually at, at the point of the explosion, I was in the western um, Damascus countryside. And although we didn't hear the explosion, um, this billowing yellow cloud appeared um, on the horizon fairly rapidly after the explosion. And um, the air defense... Um, bases around that area, around western Damascus in the countryside, were scrambling. Um, so there was a, a definite feeling of, of an incoming attack or of an escalation at that point. Now, of course, uh, we've seen the events unraveling. Um, there is a, let's say, a, a dampening down of, of that escalation for the time being, but there is a feeling of apprehension here. Um, now, Vanessa, um, we've published an article this morning uh, that you've written, mm. uh, and headline is Beirut, a tragedy that threatens the region with war and chaos. Um, what, what, how, how close to the truth is that? What, how close are, is the region to war and chaos as a result of this? And what are people in the, in the region thinking was behind what happened? Um, well, I think we need to be clear and say that, you know, the, the region is already at war. Um, certainly in Syria, as we know, there's been um, a, a sustained campaign to um, rid Syria of its elected government. Um, but of course, even in Lebanon, um, there has been a sustained economic campaign against Lebanon, culminating in last year's sort of economic freefall, which was orchestrated by the U.S. coalition, which includes Israel, of course. We have a government which uh, has only been in power for around seven months, and this is the first government um, that has shown signs of um, lack of corruption um, with Hassan Diab, the, the prime minister. Um, a, a tentative um, solidarity with Hezbollah. Hezbollah actually and candidates aligned with Hezbollah 
um, were extremely successful during the election campaign. And of course, um, the Hezbollah political wing um, have quite a, a, an influence upon the decisions within the government. So, of course, this is an anathema to, to Israel and by default to the US and its allies um, to have a government that might allow uh, Israel's nemesis, Hezbollah, to uh, increase in its influence. I won't say power. I will say influence over decisions that Lebanon makes. So, of course, we saw this um, vicious economic attack. We saw the introduction of the Caesar law, which uh, is an attempt to divide Lebanon and Syria. Of course, everything that happens in Lebanon has a direct effect upon Syria. Um, the very fact that it's the port that has been targeted, of course, the majority of Lebanon's um, goods are imported, particularly food, um, but also the port during the blockade of Syria by the US coalition is, uh, instrument, is, is pivotal to Syria's survival. So, if you like, we had um, members of the Knesset, even Netanyahu, threatening to target um, Lebanese infrastructure. Um, the general feeling is that although, and this is very much my opinion, I think it's unlikely that Israel fired missiles at this um, uh, ammonium nitrate store, I think it's very likely that it was sabotaged when one looks at uh, the explosion itself, and I talked this through um, on social media with Chris Busby, who's obviously a, an expert, particularly on, on radiation studies, post-nuclear explosions. It's unlikely to be a tactical nuke. We've not heard of any um, victims presenting with any kind of radiation poisoning at the hospitals. We haven't heard yet. Um, of course, these are very early days to be commenting and speculating. But um, clearly, if we look at the Cubono, who benefits from this, of course, it's Israel and it's the United States. Why? Because immediately after the explosion, of course, the media started to propagate the theory that there was a Hezbollah uh, ammunition store in this area, and that was what uh, either exploded or, of course, in the aftermath, what they will say is in excuse for Israel, if it's found that Israel was involved in this attack, that it was targeting an ammunition dump in self-defense. Um, but in reality, that entire port area was pretty much under the control of Saad Hariri's future party. Um, the harbor masters were affiliated uh, to the future party. Um, in that area alone, there are a number of intelligence operatives, including, I believe, or I've been told, Mossad, but certainly Chinese, um, I would guess American, etc. So it's hardly the safest place for Hezbollah to um, have uh, an ammunition store. Syed Nasrallah, of course, denied this flatly in his speech after the explosion. So what appears to be happening here is an attempt um, by the U.S. coalition, which, of course, in the region is headed up by their satellite state of Israel, um, to turn the Lebanese people against Hezbollah, to increase and exacerbate the sectarian divides that already exist inside um, Lebanon. And we've seen the arrival of uh, Emmanuel Macron from France almost immediately after the explosion. We've seen um, the Lebanese ambassador to the UN, um, I've forgotten her name, but she's affiliated to Saad Hariri and the Future Party, calling for international interference, of course she will describe it as intervention, um, in order to try and resolve issues in Lebanon. But of course we know what effectively that means. Um, you know, you're, you're describing this uh, government uh, in Lebanon, this recent government, as being showing signs of, of less corruption, lack of corruption, compared to previous governments. The way the mainstream media is spinning the protests that followed the, uh, uh, the explosion is that these were anti, you know, they were effectively accusing the government of corruption and responsibility for what happened. Um, so, uh, you know, what, what was the reason that people were out in the streets? Was it simply a, a reaction to the event itself or was there something longer term going on there? I mean, I think what we've seen, I mean, we know that Lebanon is a, is a deeply divided country along sectarian lines. 
And what we've seen um, probably in the last year, because, of course, these riots are not new. They've been going on for the last uh, eight or nine months. Um, and to a large extent, of course, within those, those riots, there are elements that are, let's say, being encouraged um, by external forces. And um, to accuse a government that is only seven months old of corruption over an event which took place um, seven years ago, 2013, the ammonium nitrate was actually taken into storage in the port. Um, and by the way, we also have to take into consideration there are reports that that, that ammonium nitrate was destined to go to Syria to be given to um, the so-called uh, moderate rebels, the terrorist um, groups, um, to use against the Syrian Arab army and allies. And in 2015, in Jishar al-Shagur, the hospital there was blown up with a vast quantity of ammonium nitrate. And if you actually look at that explosion, it's very similar to the one that we saw in Beirut, although of a, of a lower force. Um, so I think what we're seeing now is an attempt by external forces to stir up violence and rioting. We know now that the government has resigned, including the prime minister. Um, so basically that's left, you know, the familiar political vacuum. Um, Macron is talking about um, political reform. I mean, we're hearing all the usual taglines of regime change here. Um, Avars, well known for their orchestration of color revolutions and their support of um, destabilization campaigns against sovereign nations like Syria, are involved. We've seen them raise two petitions, both on their community forum and on their official Avars forum, um, calling for uh, the return of French mandate. Um, so, you know, we're seeing a mixture here of neo-colonialist interest, particularly from France, of course, a desire from Israel to see Lebanon destabilized and to see uh, Hezbollah put up as the scapegoat for the disaster. But I think what is also interesting, and I'm hearing that from a number of sources, is that they believe it's unlikely that there's going to be any resolution to the investigation, because what they're saying is that Let's say Israel attacked um, Beirut. Let's say it, it decided, as it had threatened, to destroy Lebanese infrastructure to further weaken Lebanon. Um, the explosion caused untold damage, I mean, 10 to $15 billion worth of um, material damage to houses, to apartments, to buildings, etc. Um, more than 7,000 injuries. Um, 220 plus dead. I mean, you know, 25% minimum of Beirut is, is destroyed. Um, so this would give Hezbollah, even under international norms, despite the fact that Germany and other countries have, have described them as a terrorist organization, they are part of the political process um, in Lebanon. They have defended Lebanon against the terrorist groups that threatened to come into Lebanon from Syria. Um, they have every right under international law to retaliate against Israel. So I believe that part of the reason that Macron turned up so quickly was to calm things down, both from the Israeli perspective and from uh, the Lebanese perspective. Um, President Aoun did actually say that he believed it's possible that it could be an external attack, and of course we all know that that can only mean Israel. Nasrallah tried to, again, calm things down, to call for unity, to try to stop people allowing themselves to be influenced um, into sectarian divisions and, and turning in against each other. Um, so I think, you know, we're in a very chaotic period right now. Mm. And of course, we have a number of predator states circling. And whatever, as I said, whatever happens in Lebanon right now is going to directly um, affect and impact upon Syria. Uh, Vanessa, if, if I may, um, just a sort mm. of general question about the feeling of people in Syria. Of course, much of mm. Syria is still occupied uh, by foreign forces including Western forces, the Americans, but there's, there's British, British uh, military still on the ground. Um, how do Syrian people view that? How do they feel about it? Um, well, in all honesty, I think uh, it's relatively quiet on the military front in Syria. 
what people are feeling are the effects of the sanctions and in particular the Caesar law. They're feeling the tightening of the blockade. They're feeling um, the inflation. Um, I mean, uh, to give you, I mean, I, I won't go into details, but for example, um, meat now is, is extortionately priced here. I mean, the majority of people can't afford to buy it. Um, vegetables have almost uh, quadrupled in price. The majority of, of civilians in Syria right now can't afford to feed their families, and so that is their priority. Um, we're in the middle of summer, but we're still getting uh, electricity cuts. Here, I'm three hours on, three hours off, but in rural areas, it's much worse. Um, and so as we head into winter, of course, we'll have the same problems as we had last year of fuel shortages because the oil is being occupied by the U.S., um, Turkey is cutting off water supply um, via the Euphrates. Um, basically, uh, Syria is surrounded on three sides, so in the northwest, uh, the northeast, and the south and southeast by America, Israel, and Turkey. The borders are almost completely sealed. Lebanon is the one friendly open border, and of course that was shut down in uh, the coronavirus um, crisis. And now, with the escalating tensions in Beirut and Lebanon, there is a very strong chance that, yet again, this border is going to be affected, negatively affected for Syria. So, if effectively, we are completely under siege. And that's what people are feeling here. They're feeling suffocated. They're feeling besieged. They're feeling starved deliberately. Um, and this is their focus. The military campaign, to some extent, is, is relatively stagnant right now. Even media here is not really reporting on it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much for that. What yeah. a sad situation. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Vanessa. Look, we're out of time on this, but I just want to let everybody know once again, uh, have a look at this article, Beirut, a tragedy that threatens the region with war and chaos. Please share it as widely as possible. Uh, and Vanessa, uh, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Okay. See you soon. Okay, let's uh, let's move on, Brian. And uh, the spies who hijacked America. Uh, this is uh, uh, appearing on Matt uh, uh, Talbivi's blog. And uh, well, this is about uh, Russia Gate, Spy Gate, what President Trump calls Obama Gate. Uh, and uh, uh, this is a guy called uh, Stephen uh, Skouraj. I'm not really sure how to pronounce his uh, his surname. Um, but uh, you can maybe see it on screen there. It's a hugely interesting article. I recommend everybody reads this. Um, he starts off saying, I'd moved to England to pursue an, e an academic career and leave DC's politics behind, only to have my PhD supervisor throw me back into the most outrageous political, uh, one of the most outrageous political firestorms I could imagine. The stories that the New York Times, Washington Post and others were pushing didn't add up. Many seemed planted. Uh, to cover up or advance the agendas of several individuals whose tentacles secretly ran through these scandals and who each had long-standing ties to intelligence services like the FBI, CIA and MI6. I call these individuals the Cambridge Four. Um, so he goes on to talk about uh, the fact that uh, he was a convener at a major conference at Cambridge uh, called CRASH, that's C-R-A-S-S-H. Uh, this is uh, entitled the... Uh, 2016's Race to Change the World, How the U.S. Presidential Campaign Can Reshape Global Politics and Foreign Policy. And this is from the uh, Cambridge University's Center for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities. Um, and, uh, well, the keynote speaker there was Madeleine Albright at the time, uh, and it was also addressed by U.S. Congresswoman or former U.S. Congresswoman uh, Vin Weber, uh, a Republican Party strategist, a German ambassador to the U.K., Peter Ammon, uh, Sir Richard Dearlove and former Defence and former Foreign Secretary Sir Malcolm Rifkind. They were all speaking at this event. Um, and so what uh, the article uh, goes on to make the point is, is to highlight the key players in Russiagate in the United States. Now, we have uh, had a go at this with our own graphic here in the, in the recent past, all the Queen's men. Uh, and of course, the key players, Christopher Steele, Stephen Halper, Alexander Downer, uh, Joseph Mifsud, uh, Richard Dearlove, Felix Sater, and uh, all leading back towards uh, George Papadopoulos. Now, uh, MI6 links to many of those people. Um, but what uh, this article is talking about is the Cambridge Four, and this introduces a new face 
Um, so we have the three here, Christopher Steele, former MI6, uh, now Orbis Business Intelligence, wrote the fake Trump dossier. Steph, Stephen Halper, uh, CIA, FBI links and MI6 links. Sir Richard Dearlove, of course, the former head of MI6 and Christopher Steele's boss at the time. Uh, and the man that Christopher Steele went to for advice when he was producing the Trump dossier. And the new fourth name is Christopher Andrew, who's the official historian for MI5. He's a Cambridge University man. Uh, and uh, what the article is doing is drawing uh, parallels between the Cambridge Four on screen and the, uh, the original Cambridge Five, um, who, of course, uh, I can't remember the names off off the top of my head, Brian. Well, the spy circle, the spy yeah, circle going back to Guy Burgess and uh, team. I absolutely. Think. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so these are the key players for RussiaGate in the United States, but of course, they're largely the same players for RussiaGate in the UK. We'll come on to that in a second. A couple of them also the key players, as we've pointed out recently, uh, with uh, the Skripal affair as well via Pablo Miller, but uh, Richard Dearlove and Christopher Steele absolutely involved in that. Again, building an, an anti-Russian narrative. So the person who's at the centre of this from a British point of view, of course, is Christopher Steele, uh, because he wrote not only the Trump dossier, uh, but he also wrote the recent, or at least he, sorry, provided evidence to the Intelligence Select Committee uh, for the Russia report uh, in the UK here, which was re released a week or two ago. But he also wrote the Huawei dossier, uh, which resulted in uh, the banning of Huawei from uh, British uh, British um, telecommunications infrastructure. So what we have here is an absolute uh, nest of vipers, uh, Brian. Um, and a lot of Britain's foreign policy at the moment seems to be being based on what these guys are saying. Uh, and it's largely driving us towards uh, conflict with, uh, with Russia and China, which China at the moment is describing as a Cold War, but both Russia and China asking whether it has the potential to hot up. Yeah. Um, but it all seems to come back to a little clique of four people. And perhaps uh, we need to be asking questions about why these four people are being listened to. Uh, there's no um, question that that needs to happen, Mike. We are, we are constantly saying, UK columnists constantly saying, we don't know who is actually in control of the country at the moment. We believe that there's effectively been a coup and that... Uh, We've got an unknown group of people running the country. What we can say very easily is that that group of people thoroughly integrated with, with uh, Britain's intelligence services, the very people who should be protecting the country, seem to be up to adventurous politics overseas. So this is a very dangerous, dangerous time. And I'll just add to that, we need to have a good look at our top universities because, of course, over the years, it's been those top universities that have mm. seeded spies and individuals working against the country. Just had a prompt um, on, the, uh, on the people you couldn't remember. Filthy. We had Blunt and Burgess and McLean um, uh, as the spies. That's original spying. So who is running the country, we need to get asking this question and pretty quickly. Um, so I absolutely recommend people go and uh, read Mr. Scridge's, uh, if that's how you pronounce his name, uh, a report there. Apparently he's suggesting probably two more follow-ups to that, so we look forward to those. Yes. Well, the one thing that's not happening in UK is we're not protecting our own children. On Monday, we raised the question that the Children's Commissioner, who seemed to be possibly asking some um, appropriate questions to do what, with what was happening with COVID and school children. Uh, but I'm really delighted to say this is the thing which caught our attention this morning. We know now that parents are starting to ask the right questions. So this was circulating on social media. Uh, the handle is Spotted Painton. Has anyone else had a letter from their child's school saying, saying that from September, if any child shows symptoms of COVID-19, they will be tested at school. And then if positive, they can be taken off to a secure place without their parents. This is very worrying. And I'm thinking of homeschooling my children because of this. There's more to this than meets the eye. There's a section on the web in the COVID-19 legislation stating this as well. So it's 100% true. Speak to your children's school. Now, I'm going to say this is really excellent because parents are starting to realise that their children are at risk from the COVID regulations. If you don't know what's happening at school, you really need to. And uh, we've also had this email in. 
Um, well, basically what it's saying is I've taken these figures on face value. We have not done a direct check on the figures, so they may be out, but we're taking the point of the email. Uh, it says there are 8.89 million in schools in England in 2020. That's a lot of COVID tests. As we know, lots of tests means lots of cases and lots of cases means lots of lockdown and lots more tracing and more testing. Somebody really seeing through this really horrific British government policy. And it goes on to say this, what better way to boost the test and trace system than using schools for the following reasons. The school environment and structure is already predicated upon giving orders and obeying orders, an ideal controlled setting. Two, it's a public space, i.e. not a home, often with fences and surveillance technologies inst installed. In some schools, this now includes facial recognition, Bluetooth wristbands, thermal imaging cameras. Children will naturally be easier to control. Parents are not present, no choice because of the work. Uh, one in seven people of the total 66 million in the UK will be at school. So we are now seeing people finally starting to react to this immensely dangerous lockdown policy of Boris Johnson's Conservative government. And of course, people realising that the children are most at risk because the new normal f uh, future means that your children are going to suffer most if you as a parent allow it to happen. It's, it's up to parents, Mike, no question of it. And of course, if you want more background to that, uh, Monday's news programme, we covered that. Uh, and so uh, share that as, as widely as you possibly can. Uh, but sticking with schools then, uh, of course, this has been the picture of classrooms uh, over the last few months. Uh, but we don't need to worry because uh, the government has announced an exam triple lock. So for all anybody that's waiting for GCSE results or A-level results, it's no problem uh, because you will be given the highest grade out of either your uh, assessment by your teacher or the mock exam that you did. Um, or if you decide to sit an exam in September because they're saying that they're actually going to give anybody that, that didn't get the result that they wanted the opportunity to sit an exam in September instead. So it'll be the highest of those three. That's how it's being reported in the mainstream press anyway. Uh, actually, the government press release uh, is saying that students could uh, get this high grade. Um, the, the mainstream press suggesting that it's a bit stronger than that. Uh, and uh, there's quite a backlash to it because many people saying, well, hold on a second, because uh, mock exams aren't a national exam. It, they don't have national standards. They're set by the school. Different schools approach the thing in different ways. Uh, and so uh, it's not a national exam at all. Uh, no matter how this is achieved, how this grade is finally achieved, Brian, the, uh, this year's results, how is any future employer or a university going to make, how are they going to assess this year's results when it's basically being made up? Well, uh, if you want to be really cynical, Mike, of course, it doesn't matter because there aren't going to be the jobs there for them because the jobs have been wiped out by COVID anyway. But the government simply does not care about the children. They're not important. It's more interested in its transformation of, of the British society and, and uh, the economy. Uh, what I will add is that we've had a lot of, of contact from parents saying how depressed their children are, that mm. they worked hard, ready for these exams, and then they're not, they're not able to get any reward, any proper feedback. So this is another psychological attack. It's on families, break up the families, get the minds of the children. Very, very dangerous people running the British government. Oh, well, uh, Gavin Williamson, though, he's, he's he is saying only a schoolboy. Yeah, well, indeed. Every young person waiting for the results wants to know they've been treated fairly. Uh, so well, they do, but they haven't. No, they do want, they <laughs> they do do want, want to know, know that, but they haven't been treated fairly. Yeah. No, that's right. Uh, so, uh, well, we'll leave it there. Yeah. Very serious times for the United Kingdom. If you're watching from overseas, you can see that UK under Boris Johnson's Conservative government is no longer any form of democracy. There's no question of this. We li we're living in UK. We have no idea at the moment who is actually running Britain's government. But what we're watching has been described as a fascist state installing itself. We would agree with that. 
Uh, it's up to everybody who's now awake in the UK to start challenging what's going on. I will end on a positive note before the summer, our summer break. And that is thank you very, very much to our hosts for the meeting that took place yesterday. And I just wanted to say it was wonderful to see all the people present and to hear about the work that they've been doing to change the situation in the country. Uh, we know some very brave um, actions have been taken and we know a lot of hard work is going on. And just to give a little bit of detail, as normal, we had a spread of people, some people employed, some not, some men, some women, some fathers, mothers are not. So it's good to see that there's a cross section of UK society starting to stand up and be counted. So thank you again for a really great day. That's it. We'll be back at uh, the same time on, on Friday. Friday. So I said last is the last one for me. Uh, so the last UK column news before the break will be on Friday. Yeah. That's it. Bye-bye.